Well, hello and welcome back. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in school and at the bedside. I've got a great topic for you today. Before we jump into that, let's take a quick minute for a listener shout out. And this one goes to Melinda. So hey, Melinda, I want to thank you for submitting this feedback about boot camp and the podcast. So Melinda said this, Crucial Concepts Boot Camp truly was a gift. After completing it, I went into nursing school feeling like maybe I did actually belong. It felt good to know some of the medical terminology already when some of my classmates did not. It gave me the confidence boost I needed. I listened to the podcast through my entire nursing program and just became a licensed RN as of today. I will always listen to the podcast and forever be grateful for the knowledge I've acquired through Straight A Nursing. Melinda, I think that's great that you got notification that you got your license and you thought to come and leave this feedback about the podcast and about boot camp. That kind of makes me feel like I was right there celebrating with you. So congratulations and thanks again. All right, are you ready to dive into this week's lesson? Today we're talking about Guillain-Barre syndrome or GBS. So what this is, is an autoimmune attack on the peripheral nervous system, which results in neuropathy. It's typically a self-limiting condition that comes on pretty rapidly and results in muscle weakness with some mild sensory loss in the distal extremities. Now, GBS typically follows a recent GI tract infection or respiratory system infection and has been associated with surgery, immunization, and viral infections, including Epstein-Barr, influenza, and the Zika virus. Now, when we say that Guillain-Barre has been associated with immunization, this was because after the swine flu vaccine in 1976, some people did get Guillain-Barre. So when you hear it referred to as a consequence of immunization, that's typically what people are talking about. Though, of course, it is a possibility after vaccination, though it is very, very rare, according to the CDC website. And now that we got that cleared up, in cases where the axon is targeted, it is thought to be a result of molecular mimicry of pathogen-borne antigens. So we have it either being kind of after an infection, after surgery or immunization, or because of this molecular mimicry. Now, there are four subtypes of Guillain-Barre syndrome, and I am going to try real hard not to trip over my words with these, but the main type is acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, or AIDP, and I'm just going to call it AIDP because I got through that phrase okay, but I'm not going to get cocky on you guys. So AIDP is the subtype that accounts for most cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, and it involves an ascending paralysis that typically starts in the lower extremities. Note that the key word with this one is demyelinating. Not all types of Guillain-Barre involve destruction of the myelin sheath, but this one does. And again, it is the most common. 
Next, we have acute motor axonal neuropathy, or AMAN. So this subtype involves progressive weakness of acute onset, but doesn't have that sensory impairment component. Notice that this one is not demyelinating. It is one of those axonal types. And then we have another axonal type called acute motor and sensory axonal neuropathy. So you can probably guess what this one involves. It involves ascending paralysis with sensory impairment. And then there's Miller-Fisher syndrome. This subtype accounts for less than 5% of cases, and symptoms can be similar to that common AIDP subtype. However, the typical presentation involves disruptions in cranial nerves 3, 5, and 6, ophthalmologic symptoms, areflexia, and ataxia. A common trigger for MFS or Miller-Fisher syndrome is infection, specifically Campylobacter jejuni enteritis. So now that you've got a little bit of a basic understanding of what Guillain-Barre syndrome is and what causes it, let's break down the nursing implications using the straight nursing latte method. And since most patients with GBS have that AIDP, that demyelinating subtype, that's what we'll focus on in this lesson. So the first letter is a letter L for how does the patient look? So the clinical manifestations of GBS can vary from person to person and involves ascending flaccid paralysis that starts in the lower extremities and works its way upward, and it results in full quadriplegia and respiratory insufficiency in the most severe cases. So when you look at the official diagnostic criteria for Guillain-Barre syndrome, it's a progressive weakness of more than two limbs, a loss of neurological reflexes, that areflexia, and a duration of four weeks or less. Remember, this is basically an acute condition. If the symptoms have lasted longer than four weeks, then it may be something else that is going on. So prior to the patient experiencing that ascending paralysis, which is kind of that hallmark symptom of Guillain-Barre syndrome, many patients report prodromal symptoms such as a fever, a cough, a sore throat, pain, a runny nose, and diarrhea. And then during that acute phase, signs and symptoms include, again, bilateral ascending paralysis, decreased sensation, numbness, tingling as well, and then diminished or absent neurological reflexes. The patient could also have facial weakness or facial paralysis, and this can be unilateral on just one side or bilateral on both. As a result, anytime you have a patient with anything going on with facial muscles, I want you to be very suspicious that they could have dysphagia, and dysarthria. So dysarthria is going to be that speech that is slurred. That's going to clue you in. If you don't visually pick up on something, that's going to clue you in that the patient may have dysphagia as well, which is that difficulty to swallow correctly or inability to swallow correctly. When the patient has dysphagia, they are at high risk for aspiration. The patient may also have respiratory compromise due to paralysis of the muscles of respiration. 
A patient with respiratory compromise of this magnitude will be on a mechanical ventilator, and this occurs in about 30% or so of patients. Note that the patient may also require intubation if the neck muscles are so severely weakened that they can't really maintain any neck or head control because this puts the patient at risk for airway compromise. So patient will have respiratory compromise. The severity of that will vary. If it is severe, they'll be on a ventilator. They'll have weakness. They'll have fatigue. And then another common symptom is pain, and that pain is often worse with movement. Now, the pain with Guillain-Barre can be related to their joints, their muscles, or dysesthesia, which is an abnormal pain that can present as burning, aching, or tingling. And interestingly, in pediatric patients, pain is often the first symptom noted. And then the patient will have autonomic dysfunction, and this can include orthostatic hypotension, urinary retention, extremes in blood pressure, and even cardiac arrhythmias. So how do you assess somebody with Guillain-Barre syndrome? That's the next letter in the LATTE method, which is an A for assess. So your key assessments for someone with GBS are centered on monitoring for rapid deterioration, namely that respiratory compromise. So we're going to keep an eye on their respiratory status. When assessing respiratory status, you're monitoring the patient's respiratory effort, the depth of those respirations, their respiratory rate, their oxygen saturation level, how hard are they working to breathe, are they telling you they're short of breath, and you're listening to their lung sounds. You're also keeping a very close eye on their whole neurological status. You'll be doing frequent neuro assessments, and if the patient's in the ICU, these can be as frequent as every hour, and then, of course, with any change in condition. So as part of your neurological assessment, you're making note of the patient's level of paralysis, meaning can they move their feet? No. Okay. Can they move their lower leg? No. Okay. Can they bend their knees? No. Okay. And you're going up and up and up the body because remember, this is an ascending paralysis. So you're keeping an eye on the level where that paralysis is occurring. You'll take note of their sensory and their motor function including a full cranial nerve assessment, and their level of consciousness. You'll make note of any dysfunction that could put the patient at risk for aspiration as well, such as that dysphagia and dysarthria that I mentioned earlier. You also want to monitor cardiovascular status. Due to that autonomic dysfunction, the patient will also be at risk for cardiovascular abnormalities, including hypotension and even hypertension. They could have orthostatic hypotension, tachycardia, significant bradycardias and bradyarrhythmias, and even asystole. So this patient is definitely going to be on continuous telemetry monitoring. And then a pain assessment. Just because the condition involves paralysis and sensory impairment does not mean the patient is not at risk for pain. Also be very aware of the effect that any opioids you administer could have on the patient's respiratory drive, especially in those patients who have weak respiratory musculature. 
we're also going to monitor blood glucose. So during that paralysis phase of Guillain-Barre syndrome, some patients can develop hyperglycemia or hyperinsulinemia. Now, sometimes old school medication, the patient could be getting corticosteroids. It's not actually recommended as a treatment, but if for some reason you've got a patient with GBS and they're being treated with corticosteroids, note that that can increase blood glucose as well. You also want to monitor your patient's skin, neuropathy and decreased mobility and hyperglycemia. All put your patient with Guillain-Barre syndrome at high risk for skin breakdown. And then there's disability scoring. You're not doing this assessment. This would be up to the physician, but it's helpful to know what it means as you're reading those physician notes. So there is a Guillain-Barre disability score that goes from zero to six, and higher numbers are associated with poorer prognosis. So a score of zero means they're healthy, they have no symptoms. A score of one is minor symptoms, and the individual can do some manual work. They can also run. A score of two is the individual is able to walk five to 10 meters or more without assistance, but is unable to run. A score of three is they can walk five to 10 meters across an open space with assistance, so maybe using a walker or something like that. A score of four is bedridden or confined to a chair, chair bound. A score of five means they require assisted ventilation for at least part of the day, and then a score of six if the condition has caused the death of the individual. Okay, let's move on to the next letter in the LATTE method, which is a T, and that is for tests. What tests will be utilized to monitor a patient with Guillain-Barre syndrome? So the first one we'll talk about is nerve conduction studies. So in this test, small electrodes are attached to the skin and minor electrical shocks are delivered to activate the nerves. So this test is going to measure how quickly the signals travel along nerve fibers. And this test helps determine if the GBS is demyelinating or the axonal type. So that's nerve conduction studies, small electrodes, little shocks, and we measure how quickly the signal travels. Next, we have needle electromyography. So this test involves tiny little needles inserted into the muscles while electrical recordings are taken. These recordings show how the muscles react when associated nerves are activated. So that's needle electromyography. Think tiny needles, and we see how the muscles react when nerves are activated. And then we have lumbar puncture with CSF analysis. So this is analysis of the cerebrospinal fluid. And what we're looking for is albuminocytologic dissociation. And that is just a fancy way to say, we're looking to see if the CSF has more white blood cells and higher CSF protein than normal without an overall increase in the cell count. So this is present in about 80% of patients about two weeks after symptom onset. The patient could also get a spinal MRI just to rule out other conditions that could be causing the patient's symptoms if a diagnosis of Guillain-Barre is not completely clear. 
And then we could do a blood test for ganglioside antibodies. Though these antibodies are detected in about 50% of patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome, the turnaround time for the test is relatively long, so it may not be especially beneficial when we really need that quick diagnosis. A test that the respiratory therapist may conduct on your patient is called the NIF, Negative Inspiratory Force. And what this test looks at is respiratory muscle strength and reserve. And this will help determine the patient's ability to be successfully weaned from mechanical ventilation and risk for respiratory compromise. And then another type of test that may be conducted is a speech therapy evaluation. And this is basically done to assess your patient's ability to swallow safely. And it's conducted by a speech language therapist. So let's move on to the next letter, which is another T, and that stands for treatments. What are the treatments for a patient with Guillain-Barre syndrome? So that main treatment is going to be immunomodulatory therapy. And there are two types of immunomodulatory therapy that are utilized in GBS. And these are intravenous immunoglobulin or IVIG and plasma exchange. This type of therapy is typically considered in patients who are within that four week of symptom onset, though it's important to note that not all patients are going to benefit from this treatment. Now, the preferred therapy between these two is generally intravenous immunoglobulin, or IVIG, which is better tolerated in most people and easier to administer than plasma exchange. So IVIG, which contains many antibodies, is administered at a weight-based dose for a period of five days. We also will sometimes pre-medicate patients before getting their IVIG with diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl, acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, and fluids. So you may see a pre-medicate order for those things, and that's given about 30 minutes prior to the infusion. And then during the infusion, you're going to monitor the patient for adverse reactions, which can include hypotension, it can include headache, nausea, a rash, maybe not with the diphenhydramine, but maybe, acute kidney failure, and even transfusion reactions. Note that if the dose is condensed into fewer than five days, and it may be, though five days is the typical course, the risk for cardiac and renal complications increases. Now, plasma exchange is a whole other story. The process of plasma exchange filters out pathogenic antibodies, as well as the mediatory and complement proteins involved in Guillain-Barre syndrome. The process of performing plasma exchange requires specialized training and may actually be done by a dialysis RN. Patients typically receive four to six treatments over a period of eight to 10 days. Complications include transfusion reactions, sepsis, and hypotension. Other treatments include physical therapy during that recovery phase, insulin to manage those blood glucose levels, enteral feeding as needed, mechanical ventilation as needed, and in most cases, if the patient's going to be on the mechanical ventilator for a while, like if they've been on it for a week or two and they're not being weaned successfully at that time, then also a tracheostomy. 
you'll be providing regular thorough oral care for your ventilated patients to reduce the risk of ventilator-acquired pneumonia. And the patient may even get a pacemaker if they have significant bradycardia or bradyarrhythmias as a result of that autonomic dysfunction. They'll have DVT prophylaxis because they're not getting up moving and a bowel care regimen to avoid constipation. And then we're finally to our last letter. That is E, how do you educate the patient and the family? So of course, you're going to educate your patient and their families on all their medications, all their key treatments like we just talked about. But some other key things to teach are that GBS rarely occurs again. So that's good news. And more than 80% of patients are independent within six months. And studies show that about 65% have a full recovery. So that's all very promising. However, about 20% do not have any significant recovery and actually have significant disability, even with treatment. So there is not always some good news with that. They should understand that recovery is going to include extensive PT and OT, physical therapy and occupational therapy, and that these modalities are there to help them regain their independence, and that they may continue to experience fatigue and pain and paresthesia for several years. So there you have it, your quick guide to Guillain-Barre syndrome. I hope you join me back here next week. We're going to be diving into pediatric land, looking at musculoskeletal disorders in children. And if you found this episode helpful and you want subsequent episodes to be easily available to you, just subscribe or follow the podcast on whatever podcast player you're using. I'll see you next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.